Good morning. Looking for a friend of mine. Saw a friend this morning. Is this on? Yeah. Saw a friend this morning, and he had a name tag on because it's name tag Sunday, and uh, it said 17 to nothing. And, and when I saw that, I said, it was 19 to nothing, you dingbat. Go back and change your tag. Because just for that moment, I actually, you know, I, and then it hit me down here that it wasn't 19 to nothing, it was 17 to nothing. Like, <laughs> But I just wanted to set the record straight because uh, I really couldn't, couldn't speak to you with a clear conscience without uh, fessing up to my mistake. Hey, we've been looking at discipleship, particularly uh, in calling it follow me, that is Jesus saying follow me because that's where discipleship begins, and then elaborating on the basis of scripture about what discipleship involves. And we've seen that disciples make disciples, even though we're not yet finished, even though we're not yet perfect. You know, there is that sense that, well, when I get it all together, I'll have the mindset, the heart, the spirit of a disciple maker. But that's not the way Jesus sees it. He says we grow, we develop, we mature actually through disciple making. And so he says, make disciples. We've seen that disciples follow Jesus, and the emphasis is on Jesus because we follow a person, not a place, (laughs) a person, and that is fundamental to who we are as disciples. It's a living relationship. We've seen that disciples are leaders. Actually, the more faithfully we follow the better we are to lead others to Jesus Christ. And disciples are laborers. We saw that our labor is a labor of love with a shepherd's heart that is our shepherd, Jesus' heart, and a work that can't be put off, a work that can't wait. And we saw that disciples are stewards that we are entrusted with a great enterprise that is so vital and important to the Lord himself that he made disciples because we are to make disciples. And last Sunday we saw disciples have a can-do mindset. It's a mindset. It, it's not, you know, it's not like a, a title where you get up at 8 a.m. and you work until 5 and then you're off. It's a mindset in which you're deliberate and intentional. And yes, you may have people that you are pouring your life into. They're cognizant. They're aware. They realize that you're investing in them and reciprocally, mutually, they're investing in you. But, but then just our lives are an investment in others. And we're mindful of the fact that the Lord is working through us. And sometimes we're doing the work of discipling without even knowing it. 
This morning, I want us to look at uh, 2 Timothy 2, 24, 25, and 26. And I want us to look at it with uh, a short story in mind. I read this this week. It goes like this. In a village long ago lived a, a young boy who loved nothing as much as competing in athletic contests. Because he was fit and strong, he usually triumphed. And he grew to love the praise, applause, and adulation he received from the villagers around him. One day, he challenged two other youths to a race from one end of town to the other end. The villagers all lined up to watch. The boy won, and the townspeople cheered wildly. Another race, the boy demanded, greedy for more praise. Who else will race me? Two more young men stepped up, and again the race was run. And once again the boy won, and he laughed in pride as the villagers cheered though they were a little less enthusiastic than before. Who else? The boy crowed as he looked around for a competitor. Come on, are you all afraid? A woman who was watching the races grew annoyed at the boy's arrogance, so she prodded two elderly men to challenge him. They could barely make their way to the starting line but they seemed willing to compete. What's this? The boy was puzzled. How could he win the applause he craved by beating two old men who could hardly stagger two steps? The woman walked up and whispered in his ear, Do you want applause for this race? Of course, he exclaimed. Finish together. Just finish together. The boy did as he was told and received the loudest applause of his life when the three of them reached the finish line side by side. There's a great parable. Disciples finish together. And I want to return to 2 Timothy 2. Verses 24, 25, and 26, with this in mind. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. Bear in mind, Paul is awaiting trial before the emperor of Rome, Nero himself. In his letter to the Philippians, He expressed ambivalence as to whether he would survive. Live or die, he said, I live to glorify Jesus Christ. Now he's writing to Timothy. He's invested his life in Timothy. Timothy is just one of those that he has discipled. If anyone is going to carry forward 
the legacy, if you will, everything that Paul has learned, everything that Paul treasures, everything that characterizes him as one who is faithful to Jesus Christ, he's tried to pour it into Timothy. And Timothy is no lightweight. He's leader in the church of Ephesus, which is, if you know anything about Ephesus, it was, a, it was kind of like the Asia Minor, Rome. It was a grand city. And Paul asks him to travel, to come to him, bring books and parchments, because Paul realizes that he may not have another opportunity to see Timothy face to face. And he writes this letter And this is what he says to Timothy. Now, put yourself in Timothy's place. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. But kind to everyone. able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I hear Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, no one, no one is beyond the veil. No one, even if they wrong you, even if they mistreat you, even if they're insulting to you, don't fight. I'll have a bit more to say about that. Don't be quarrelsome. Be gentle. You could also say be kind, be mild-mannered. Teach, but be patient and willing to endure mistreatment, evil. And remember, the Lord's in this. You know, the Lord's working through you. At times you may not see it, but he's going to use your disposition, your approach, your attitude, your grace, your kindness, your gentleness, your patience, your inability to be deterred, you know, to be worn out, to pull out your hair or slam the door and say, that's it. You're not worth it. I give up on you. Because Timothy, remember, there's a spiritual battle going on. There's much more at work than you see. But God's going to use you strategically. And he may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. 
In other words, this kind of conduct is in coordination with and in keeping with the truth. Sometimes, you know, we want to bang home the truth and we feel absolved of any requirement to be kind or gentle or courteous. We want to speak the truth, not in love, as Paul compels us, but with vindictiveness. And then he says in the final verse of chapter 2, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Notice the devil is mentioned because he is, in fact, the very word devil means Accuser, slanderer, fault finder. See Romans, I mean, uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. But he exploits our pride and our selfishness. And pride never runs the race, any race, together. Pride runs alone. Now, I'm sharing this because this is very real to me. And I imagine it is real to you because I find dealing with difficult people, we'll call them high maintenance people. My wife calls them sandpaper people. Life is full of sandpaper people. And the shocking part of it is to others, sometimes we're the sandpaper people. We're the high maintenance people. But it's hard work. In fact, sometimes it just seems impossible. And that's why we avoid people like that. And we isolate people like that. We turn away from people like that. And sometimes we even slander them or blame them to justify the way we treat them. This is not. This is not the gospel. Disciples do it together. It's the story of the Bible, the gospel, the church, together. Think about these words. These are huge words. Reconciliation. Redemption. Adoption, love, grace, forgiveness. These are the words of the Bible, of the gospel, of our Lord. And they have to be the words of our life too. They're all about bringing people together in Jesus Christ. And we can't wait for others. Disciples don't wait for everyone else to get it together. This morning as we were singing some of the hymns, you can't help but think about that future day when the Lord will come. I believe that when the Lord comes on the scene with irresistible power, 
He will do things that we in our human strength cannot do. Even though maybe as groups, as fraternities, as even states and nations, large enterprises, we may join shoulder to shoulder to try and accomplish for this world, for peace, for mankind, if you will. Things that only he can do. And yet I'm not waiting for that day because he is the Lord of my life. And he wants to do it in my life now. And he wants to do it in your life now too. He wants to work through you. Will it be as effective as when he in all of his glory reveals himself and initiates these things? No. But that doesn't absolve me from the fact that he's constantly, through his Holy Spirit, compelling me to live out this gospel, live out this grace that I personally know, live out this forgiveness that I personally know, live out this life with the people in my own sphere, my own neighborhood. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In other words, the whole chapter of Ephesians 2. And if you were just read chunks of the New Testament with the idea of togetherness, the importance of the redeeming, reconciling, uniting work of God, not just in what he's done through the cross, not just through his character, but through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. I mean, in Ephesians 2, we could spend a week or more just on that chapter, but the words grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved, not works, goes to peace. He has broken down the dividing wall, the two making one new person, one new entity in Jesus Christ. One new temple is how the chapter ends in Ephesians 2. The pieces all fitted together, united in one coherent working temple. 1 John 1, 7, walk in the light as he is in the light, and we have fellowship together. You walk in the light, I walk in the light. This is not sunlight. This is the light of his truth, the light of his salvation, the light of Jesus Christ. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, that's how fellowship is created. Not by both liking the same brand of coffee or time and place to be together. Because hearts are united. Egos are put aside. Differences are seen in the right perspective. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, he says, walk worthy of your calling. In other words, live in symmetry, in likeness to the calling to which God's called you with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit, God, is all about creating unity. We maintain it. We don't create it. We maintain it through patience, gentleness, love, humility. Then he goes on to say, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, 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 one. Not two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten. Philippians chapter 2. Paul opens up with a number of pleas, but he keeps asking that we should have the same mind, same love, full accord, one mind, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves, having the mind of Christ, his attitude. Galatians 5.20, he contrasts the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh. And what are they? Selfishness, dissension, partisan spirit. I hope you don't feel beat up. I mean, I, I just get exercised about this. This is amazing stuff. And it's all over the place. And you see the, the general themes in contrast. Partisan spirit, conceit, selfishness, as opposed to this beautiful picture of people of different background, different race, different education, different parents, different economies, different, 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 divided, 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 opposed to one another, and they're brought into harmony and unity because they each make him Lord. Now look, I know, it's, I mean, it's true. People are sheep, and sheep bite. And if I stick with the metaphor, uh, Shepherds, leaders bite too. Everybody bites. And that's no surprise. It is the doctrine of the Bible. It's the doctrine of sin. Paul talks about the difference when Christ enters our lives as a battle that is created when the Spirit intervenes between the flesh and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is not a material me, it's me in my independence. My identity in me and not in Jesus Christ. And that is the battle, that's the natural battle, the fight for control, the fight for lordship. And that's where faith is energized because we live not by sight, but by faith. And so we take steps of faith. We go places we'd never go on our own. We do things we'd never do on our own. We challenge and test our own fears because we believe in him more than ourselves. And many of you know, if not every one of you, what it's like to walk in faith and realize spiritual truths in an experiential, tangible way 
because you stepped out in faith and you did it Jesus' way and not our way, your way, my way. Paul is challenging Timothy. Timothy, this is so important because you're going to run up against sandpaper people. And it's scratchy. But don't you let them dictate you. You let the Lord dictate you. And thus you will express yourself in ways that are redemptive and conciliatory, seeking the Lord's objectives and goals. We do it together because we're servants of the Lord. That's how he begins, the servant of the Lord. This is impossible without Jesus. That's why he is called the Lord. And we, his servants, only Jesus as Lord has the juice to say, you must. And that's what Paul is saying here. The servant of the Lord must Not if you feel like it. Not when you're in the mood. Not when everything's going your way. But you must not fight. Maybe I'm trying too hard because I, maybe you've already gotten it clearly enough, but this is really profound stuff because we just, we don't think about this. We think there are all kinds of times it's legitimate to fight. The word fight here is the word that, word that is used in epic literature of hand-to-hand combat, fights to the death, wars and battles, fisticuffs, as well as verbal arguments. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 52, it does speak of a verbal quarreling. But in Acts chapter 7, verse 26, when it speaks of Moses, it speaks of physical fighting. In fact, it goes on to say of Moses, who came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? That's what fighters do. They try to hurt each other. James 4.2 uses the same word. He says you can't get what you want, so you fight and wage war. In other words, you don't just get into a scuffle. You amass and marshal your forces and wage a whole war, a major campaign. And why does he say we do this? Because you do not ask God. We do it together because we're the Lord's servant. We do it together because the Lord's servant must not fight. We do it together because the Lord's servant must be gentle. The word gentle is the word kind. It's the word mild. In 1 Thessalonians 2.7, there's a long-standing debate. There are two words that are just so close together in the Greek language. One is, is uh, a, a, a young 
child, and one is the word mild or kind, the very word that's used here in 2 Timothy. And if that were the reading that should be there, then we would read gentle like a nursing mother. Doesn't that give you? And that is a very appropriate description. A nursing mother who tenderly cares for her child. It's also used in the Old Testament where the the Greek language translates the Hebrew. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The fourth verse of the same chapter, chapter 15, gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 25, 15, with patience, a ruler is persuaded and a soft tongue breaks a bone. What's striking is he says to all, to all, no exceptions. That is because we serve the Lord who is a redeemer, a reconciler, a lover, who has a great goal in mind. And that is to draw people to himself, that they might know the new life that we as his disciples know. We can't betray that by letting our own egos and interests justify or issue in fighting. We do it together because the Lord's servant must teach patiently without resentment. Don't think of a classroom where teaching is thought of as just dumping information. And if you know any teachers, for many, it's a vocation. In fact, it's a calling. And they're really there to help these children or these young people, to educate them so that they might become better people. That's the same kind of job and calling that influences us. I remember when we were in South San Francisco, we were living with another family. They had a bay window and the sun would come in in the morning and Jordan was five years old at the time. And I got up and I greeted him cheerfully and he was kind of had his blanket around him and I opened the shades to let the sun in. And he, he was, you know, and, and I said, okay, well, we'll, you know, but anyway, this thing, and, and at one point he, he was so upset, you know, he had his, he'd just woken up. And he said, I hate you, a five-year-old. Can you believe that? My precious little five-year-old, I hate you. And there was just a fraction of a moment where I was just tempted to blurt out, well, I hate you too, you little punk. Oh, no, I didn't say that. But those things do pop into your mind, if you're honest. You ungrateful child. I who feed and house you. So, I know I said, but I love you. I love you. And you know why? Because I'm the adult and he's the five-year-old. And that's the way disciplers are to be, adults in Christ, not five-year-olds. 
That's the kind of teaching. Look at how he describes teaching because he goes on to elaborate. Patient, even when people are insulting and wronging and expressing what amounts to evil, it's just so out of hand. It's so out of balance. It's so unfair. It's so wrong. But you don't react in kind. Express patience. And then what does he go on to say? Correcting with gentleness. That's that's the objective. That's the goal. I'm going to help guide. I'm going to, to help instruct in ways that are appropriate to you and what you need at this time because I'm the adult. And right now, Right now, I've played the child plenty of times, but right now it's you. And if we both start walking in the light as he is in the light, if we both let the Lord flood our hearts, we'll come together and we'll both grow together. We'll join hands together. When Jesus is in control, we act like loving parents not angry siblings. When Jesus is in control, we have an awareness that God is in it and may be able through our caring approach to bring about repentance, a change of mind, and turn to an awareness and experience of the truth, the truth that is prevailing in our hearts when we treat folks like that. There's a proverb, an African proverb, that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Jesus wants us to go together. We got to do everything we can. And it starts with each one person taking inventory of their life, their relationships. Maybe there's Maybe there's not a problem, really, to speak of. Maybe there's no one that you're estranged from or alienated from. That would be great. But if there is, start praying about that. Start asking the Lord to mold and shape your heart, to give you opportunities. By the way, and this is all for free, because I've just got a couple more minutes, so I'm, I'm going to give you a big bonus. This is the magic word. I, I think that um, I, this word is so important when it comes to, to addressing tough things, because that's the thing. No, who wants to confront or who wants to deal with these things face-to-face? You know, we all like to be liked. We don't want to do the tough stuff. And it's easier to just compartmentalize it and forget it exists or try to believe it doesn't. Well, here's the magic word. And if you use this word, it will really help you. It's the word awkward. Awkward. See, what you do is when... You've prayed about it, and you see the light, and you're ready to make amends or try to apologize for something you did wrong, you know, as when you leave your sacrifice at the altar, go and reconcile and then come back. You start off by saying, hey, thanks for seeing me. 
I, I just want to begin by saying, I, I, this, I, I feel really awkward. And I'll tell you why. Because this is hard. Uh, it doesn't come easy. I've got some things I've got to say that don't come natural to me. I wish they did, but they don't. Um, I'll tell you why else it's awkward. Because I care about you. I, I, I would love for us to be friends again. I would love for us to be able to talk easily and look each other in the eye and know that friendship that we once knew. And I, I, it's, it's hard because I don't want to say or do anything that would, would mess that up. And, and yet, I feel like every word I say has to be just so right for us to get this fixed. And that's really what I want. I want to get it fixed. You see how that works? When you use the word awkward, you open yourself up and you let the other person see your heart and understand where you're coming from. And it tends to clear away any possibility of misunderstanding. And they know even before you've supposedly said an official word on this issue, you've already said, this is what I'd like to see us become. This is what I'd like to see happen. And you know what? Most people... I've never known anyone not to. They respond to that kind of spirit in a very kind and gentle way. And God does and begins a great work. First Peter chapter 3, I'm going to close with this. It's just a couple pages to the right. Just past Hebrews. First Peter, chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to be up here after uh, we say amen. And uh, the pastoral staff, elders, and their wives, surely the Lord's spoken to you in some way, and in some cases quite specifically. I'm no seer. I'm no prophet. I'm human. And I know the Lord has spoken to me. If you would like to pray about what the Lord has touched your heart upon this morning. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Well, you got to get that taken care of today. And if you would like 
to say, I need Jesus Christ to be Lord of my life. We invite you to come. To pray for yourself. Come and pray with us. To pray for someone else. Come and pray for us. You come as the Lord leads. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. All of your word magnifies his importance. His love, his grace, his forgiveness, his transforming power in our lives. Help us, Lord, in each and every area to make him Lord in person. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all of God's people prayed, amen.